We are looking at the book of First and Second Samuel, but of course, right now, we're still in the early part of the first of those two books. In uh, chapter two this morning, last week we finished up chapter one, and uh, Pastor Steve took us through that second half where we found uh, Elkanah and Hannah having returned to the tabernacle to worship to commit Samuel to the work of the Lord. And if you missed our, our first message, I encourage you to go back, listen to the podcast so you can catch up and get the history and context for where we're at. But we're, we're, we're bridging, we're making our way over from Israel's time of the judges into the days of their being led by kings. The, the monarchy is coming, but not yet. Samuel is Israel's first prophet in the land and uh, also her last judge. And we're just getting introduced to Samuel. He's only a child at this point. The last verse that we read was, so they worshiped the Lord there. But their worship does not end there with the last prayer that Hannah offers at the end of chapter one. In fact, it continues on. And uh, what I find fascinating is the context for the prayer that we're going to examine this morning along with some other verses. To step back for a moment and, and recognize that Hannah in, in the first 10 verses of today's chapter is just expressing her, her, her heart of worship and praise to God. But the backdrop is she's just given away her firstborn and only son. It's tremendous, really, when you think about it, because you can skip right into it and read it out of context and just think, wow, this is a great prayer of worship and praise. And many have compared it to the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1. Uh, there are uh, scholars actually tend to believe that Mary was influenced by Hannah's prayer because of the similarities. But to understand that this praise was in spite of and, and, and in the context of what could have been great pain of heart, what could have easily been justifiable frustration with God, anger, disappointment. Why, Lord? This could have been some kind of, of depressing, um, you know, prayer of, of frustration to the creator, but we don't pick up on any of that. Instead, Hannah chooses gratitude. And that is our message title this morning as we're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 21, choosing gratitude. It reminds me of Paul's challenge to the Thessalonians, found in chapter 5, verse 16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. In everything give thanks. Choosing gratitude. Gratitude is so important. It's important for our hearts, for our attitudes, for our perspective. And of course, it's right. Despite our assessment of our personal circumstances, which is how we tend to filter our, our worship experience. Am I feeling good? I'm liberated to worship. Are things going right? Is God blessing me and answering my prayers? Oh, I'm just going to pour out my heart in praise to him. But we see something very different here. We find that God is worthy of our praise no matter our circumstances. When things go well, when they go our way, 
and when they don't. So as we look at Hannah's, Hannah's her, her prayer, her testifying of God's goodness, we're going to do it this morning in four parts. As we consider this woman of faith's choice to testify to God's power and goodness, even though personally she's facing loss, God had provided, he'd given, but now he is seemingly taking it away or allowing it to be taken away. How do you and I do with praise and worship when we're experiencing loss, when we're not getting our way or are just plain disappointed? Hannah could only see God's goodness, his blessings, his provision. She chose to worship and trust him. And, and her heart, her faith, and her trust grew as a result. And yours and mine will too if we do the same. In fact, I think that God was able to reveal things in and through her as she trusted and worshipped that he would not have been able to do otherwise. Had she instead retreated into herself and focused on discouragement, and loss. You know, God gave me this experience this morning during worship <laughs> as I was choosing to praise him, to set aside distractions, to set aside anxieties. And I remembered what we were studying this morning and I thought, thank you, Lord. It's true. When we purpose and say, Lord, I'm going to be obedient in ascribing to you the glory and the praise that you deserve. I am going to declare and proclaim what is true about you, whether I feel like it or not. I'm going to trust that you are bigger and greater than my circumstances and that your word trumps my emotions, my doubts, and my fears. When we do that, God meets us in that place of faith, and he builds us up. He grows us in ways that we can't imagine. He reveals things that we would never otherwise see, hear, or understand. So let's pray as we dive into this morning's verses. Father, as we open your word, we pray that you would give us the faith to trust, to hear. Lord, we pray for anointed hearing, for the ability, God, to receive the word, Lord, that you are, are offering this morning to us, that we would take in it, like our necessary food, daily bread, Lord. We want to depend on it. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first of four sections of Hannah's prayer that we'll be looking at this morning are verses one through two. Incomparable is our first point. And Hannah prayed and said, my heart rejoices in the Lord. My, my horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord. No, uh, excuse me, for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Now, she may be giving up that, that little child of hers, so dear to her, her heart. But Hannah is choosing to remember that Samuel was a gift from God to begin with. He didn't belong to her. He was only on loan to her. And so she was now, and along with her husband Elkanah, loaning that child back to the Lord. Samuel never would have been were it not for God's miraculous working in her life. She is choosing not to question 
his wisdom or ability to care for her child who is now beyond her, her ability to control. She's choosing to trust. And here, most notably, she's choosing gratitude and thankfulness for all that God has done. She turns from whatever fear or sadness she may have and glorifies God for his goodness. My heart rejoices in the Lord, she says. And as we move into this chapter, we're going to find this mother had a lot of reason to be fearful, to be concerned. Don't read this and think, everything's going to be fine. All the I's are dotted, all the T's are crossed. I would submit to you, none of them were. None of them. She took her, her precious only born child and placed him in the hands of God in the form of, of frail and flawed people and could only trust God for the outcome. But she did it in faith. Hannah here states or sings, cries out that her God is beyond compare. There's none like him, and he's worthy of all praise and worship. She writes, I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Kind of like that. We, we want to be able to pray that, right? Like to have victory over our enemies and kind of give them, you know, some side eye and a little bit of a smile. Like, yeah, that's right. Your life is falling apart and mine is blessed. I, I think there's a little bit of a, I, I, I'm halfway joking here, but there's a little bit of a Psalm 23 thing that we're touching on uh, that we spoke to even recently, where the Lord is preparing a table in the presence of Hannah's enemies, where she's able to experience God's provision and deliverance and blessing while her enemies are looking on. Now, does Scripture give us liberty to, to gloat or anything like that? No, of course not. We're called to pray for our enemies. Uh, but, but Hannah speaks of rejoicing, and I, I think we can rejoice before the Lord when God is working. She writes, my horn is exalted in the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean Hannah was a bugle player and she's, you know, trumpeting out there in front of the, uh, the tabernacle. That's not what's going on. In, in Hebrew literature and understanding, a horn spoke of strength. And you imagine animals today with horns, a rhinoceros or a ram or an ox that has a, a great horn that sort of typifies its power. And that's what it's symbolized for the Hebrews. And she's saying that, that God is her strength and deliverance. Nor is there any rock like our God. It reminds us of Moses' words in Deuteronomy 32 verse 4. He is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice. Righteousness and, and upright. Righteous and upright is he. Simply our God is incomparable, and he's working on our behalf and has. Jesus is the very rock of our salvation, and we can rejoice in our salvation and circumstances in life. Now, now secondly, we come to verses 3 through 5, where Hannah declares that God is incomprehensible. Verse 3, talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. Now, while we may imagine that we know better 
or, or more or have our own ideas as to what God should do differently in regards to our lives and circumstances. The truth and the reality is that his wisdom, power, and knowledge are incomprehensible. Do you ever catch yourself figuring things out in your life or, or the world, if God would only listen to me, if he would only take my advice, if he would only do what I'm telling him to do, everything would be fine. You ever catch yourself doing that? And then kind of back up and remember, oh yeah, God knows more than I do. He's, he's incomprehensible. He knows. He's powerful. He is infinite in wisdom and understanding. Now, Hannah, in these verses, she's certainly thinking of her own circumstances. She refers to barrenness, and we know that, that obviously this is a response to what God has done, but her sight goes beyond her own personal pain. This declaration, it's broader than just her experience. She's remembering God's faithfulness to Israel, his provision and protection over them as a people Verse 4, the bows of the mighty men are broken and those who stumbled are girded with strength. And here she, she speaks to the greatness of God and his supremacy over the strong of this world. Or those who seem powerful and threaten to rob us of peace and perhaps even safety. God will strengthen and protect the weak and the ones prone to stumbling before their enemies, if not in this life, ultimately in the one to come. Verse 5 illustrates her personal experience before God in this reversal of fortunes that he brings about that, that are highlighted in these verses. Most notably that the barren has borne seven. She who could have no children now will, will have seven. This was before Hannah had any more children. She will go on to bear five. Ultimately, uh, excuse me, and, and she who has many children who has become feeble, the one that boasted in their productivity and ability apart from God, God's going to humble them, she says. She sings not only of the character of God, but of, of the promise of his control over the affairs of men and women, uh, and that one day he is going to right all wrongs. Injustice, justice, sin, and brokenness, they won't last forever. Her experience, it kind of becomes a microcosm for what God wants to do in the nation of Israel and certainly in the world. The challenge, of course, is will we trust in his knowledge over our own? Will we trust in God's understanding, his, his omniscience, over our limited, finite ability to comprehend the things going on around us. It really does come down to a choice, doesn't it? And I think, as I mentioned earlier, it it's, tends to be typified in those moments of prayer, literal and actual worship before him. I think especially corporate worship is an opportunity for that, like we, we have at the beginning of our services on Sundays. We stop and we pause and we declare with our lips... God, you are true and right, and I can trust you. And the things that I'm worried about, the things that I'm upset about, the things that I'm angry about, the things that I don't understand, I can set those aside because you do understand them, and you are in control of them, even though it feels like things are very out of control. Will we rest in his being the God of knowledge? Will we worship at his feet? 
let go of our need to lean on our own understanding, believing that we know better. Will we press in to the God whose knowledge, power, and wisdom are incomprehensible? Because that's a tremendous place of rest. God, I can trust you. Now, thirdly, let's look at verses 6 through 8 as we remember God was and is the cosmic creator and initiator. That's our third point. The Lord kills, verse 6, and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap. To them, excuse me, to set them among princes and makes them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he sets the world upon them. Hannah, in these verses, she proclaims the sovereignty of God over life, death, poverty, and wealth, suffering, and health. He is the initiator, the one with whom everything begins. The very world, your life and mine, he is the one over life and death. He's in control of our circumstances in this life. He set the world in motion. This, this perspective, I think it's, it's critical to choosing gratitude in the face of loss when we don't understand what God is or isn't doing in grief and pain, in sorrow. Hannah rejoices in the Lord and remembers that he wasn't just in control when he created the world's but, but that he still is today and always will be. And I think there's a challenge for us as, as followers of Jesus in, in this present age to translate what we read in the scriptures into our experience right now. To read the ladies here studying Genesis on Mondays and Friday mornings. To, to read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and recognized God. It's not as though he used up all of his power then. And, and now he's just sort of, you know, it's just sputtering and, and he's recharging for like the millennium or something like that. No, he's the same God. His, his power is without limit. His care and concern for you and I. When we see his faithfulness to Israel and his promises and his word, his love for us at the cross, it's, it's enduring, it's unending. To recognize that, that God is personal, that he loves you today, that he cares about your circumstances this moment, that he's desiring to show himself faithful to you in your marriage, in your kid's life, in your health, in the workplace, in your anxieties, in your fears, in your struggles. He wants to work. He wants us to trust him. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he brings up, verse 6. This reminds us, Hannah's declaration of God's uh, authority over life and death. It reminds us of Jesus' words in Revelation. I am he who lives and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of Hades and of death. Jesus tells us I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. God is over the rich and poor, the lowly and the exalted, whether born into obscurity or royalty, and one day he will bring it all to an end. We, we look at England and we see the royal family and, and you know, the, the intrigue and trying to understand what that must be like, but recognizing there's a day when we will all stand before the throne of God, and the ground will be level, just as level as it is at the cross, that, that there is only one king before whom we all must bow, and he holds in his hands the power of death and life. He is in control of all. He created and he initiated the world and our very lives. When you and I choose gratitude over fixating on the loss and the grief of what isn't or what hasn't been yet. Our eyes are opened to thankfulness for all that is. Now, fourthly and finally, verses 9 through 10 speak of God as our interceder. Verse 9, he will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to the king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now Hannah ends her praise here with this proclamation of God's protection over his people, judgment against the wicked of the whole world, and his hand of blessing and strength being committed to the king, who, interestingly enough, Israel has not had up until this point in her history. There is no king of Israel. And, and here is where Hannah's praise actually becomes prophetic. He will guard the feet of his saints, and by strength no man shall prevail. It reminds me of Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. Hannah, who has trusted God, must do so now again. As she's left her son in his loving arms, the arms of the father, he is able to watch over the affairs of men, nations and wars, and he can watch over her life and that of her son. Maybe you're having trouble trusting, trusting someone or some aspect of your life into the hands of the Father this week, this morning, the last 10 years. The Lord's saying, I, I, have, the, I have the entire world in my hands. I, you can trust me with that situation, with that individual. Verse 10, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. What's interesting is the word anointed is the same word translated Messiah because that is what Messiah means, anointed one. This is the first time in the Old Testament when Israel's king and her Messiah are mentioned together in the same place. Here, Hannah, in the spirit, she goes far beyond her own life and circumstances and speaks to not only Israel's salvation, but that of the world. That, that, that we have a God, the creator of the universe, who desires to intercede for us, his creation. 
Her son Samuel's life and ministry, of course, is going to become a major touchstone on the path to David's kingly line, which will ultimately lead to the Savior, the King of Kings and Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. God has interceded and advocated for his people in sending his son, our ultimate intercessor and interceder. We read in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, therefore he is able to save to the uttermost, to the uttermost, those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them, our King and Messiah. Hannah, in her, in her gratitude and worship, she ends here in seeing this, this, this future of salvation for Israel and for the world. And again, as I mentioned earlier, it makes me wonder what revelation, what understanding we miss out on when we, when we don't purpose to worship. I, I really encourage you, um, the, the first 25 minutes of service, that's, that's not the, the buffer, you know, to hit the Starbucks drive-thru or uh, spend some time in the parking lot or, you know, ah, it's okay, my kids can go in late, it's, it's just Sunday. No, no, it's, it's worship time for them and it is for you and I. Not only that our hearts would be prepared to receive this word in this moment, but that, that things would be aligned in, in our own spiritual vision. That we would have that moment, as I spoke to earlier, to correct things that are not right between us and the Lord. To lay our anxieties, fears, and worries down at his feet in favor of focusing on his ability and power, his love, and his mercy toward us. His power and ability. We remain outside of that blessing when we choose to lean on our own understanding. We don't want to miss out on that opportunity. We want to press into it by faith. Now, as we continue in this chapter, what we already know is that Hannah's expression of worship and praise, it was done against a difficult backdrop, but we really haven't given a lot of details completely as to what that difficult backdrop is. Yes, she's left her small child, in, in the hands of the high priests and other priests and presumably even some, some women who volunteered there and served at the tabernacle. So, so it's kind of a takes a village sort of moment here, but what mom wants to trust anybody with their child? Hannah did. We talked about that in our first message and uh, Pastor Steve did as well last week. But there's, there's more to it. The challenges are even greater than we can imagine. She's just left her her child, in, in their hands, apart from her watchful eyes. Samuel is entrusted into God's hands. The God that she has just been worshiping. Are his hands capable? Is he able to take care of that child? Feel free to answer. <laughs> what about you and me? What are we so afraid to trust God with in our lives? That really, if we, were, if we were taken to task, if our hearts were laid bare before the Lord and each other, <laughs> we're not trusting him with it. We're holding on so tight. We're afraid. We say we trust God. We don't. She chose to accept and trust God. Can you and I, can we worship and trust God through that kind of pain? Because trusting God 
is not always pleasant. Sometimes it hurts a lot. Do you think it was pleasant for Abraham to lay Isaac on the altar? Not at all. But his eyes were fixed on his father, whom he trusted. Reminds me of Job's reflection in chapter 1, verse 20. Remember, Job had lost just about everything at this point, and very soon after this, he'd lose even more. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's, that's a statement of absolute trust in God's goodness. The Lord has taken away, uh, the Lord has, uh, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's trust in his sovereignty, his ability to work in our circumstances. Hannah really has a grasp of Romans chapter 8, verse 28, from an Old Testament perspective. She's, she's, she's kind of got what Joseph learned. God is causing all things, he will cause all things to work together for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. We can really call this the fourth installment, a, a late one in our Hope in the Valley series. It, it fits well. But there are more challenges coming. Our next point in looking at verses 11 through, I think we're going to go all the way to verse 17, able to keep. That is that which we commit to him, thinking of 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. We'll talk about that more a little bit, verse, uh, a little bit later, but verse 11. Then Elkanah, that is Hannah's husband, Samuel's father, went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. Now, we could read that and think, oh, so Hannah stayed behind. No. In fact, it will clarify later in verse 19 that Hannah also left, and some, uh, at least a couple older translations actually put in what's implied, that Elkanah and Hannah went. I like the, the Living Bible. One commentator I read pointed out it's not a word-for-word translation. It's more of a paraphrase, so it's not one you want to rely on, but it, it adds some illumination. It renders this, and the child became the Lord's helper, for he assisted Eli the priest. I like that. We, we need to let children help the Lord and serve Sometimes as adults, we can, we can kind of push them out of the way. We can kind of sideline them. Reminds me of Jesus' encounter with children, Matthew 19, verse 13. Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes we can get frustrated by messes that children make and um, disorder and noise and things like that that they bring. But I, I remember <laughs> Pastor Steve one time was pointing out that I think it's the proverb that, that says uh, the, the barn is clean where there are no oxen. You know, we, we, can, we can all be old and clean and everything's nice and there's no stains anywhere and, um, and, and just, you know, keep ourselves clean and tidy into total irrelevance. Or we can recognize, no, no, Jesus built in new birth into this whole thing and God looks not only at children as the next generation but, but today and says there's so much there, a preciousness and an intimacy and a simplicity of faith that we need 
And maybe there's something of that here when we look at Samuel and scratch our heads and think, what in the world is God doing? That he would send a child into this situation apart from his parents. Samuel had the opportunity to learn what it was to serve and live for God from the time that he was only a child. And it's a precious gift. But let's move on to the problem. Verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up, so they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. There were some major problems with Eli's sons who served him. And first and foremost, before we need to consider anything else, we read they did not know the Lord. They didn't know God. They didn't fear him. They weren't serving him. They didn't trust in him. And everything really begins and ends there. Every other problem in their lives, it flows from this point. A man or a woman in ministry who lacks a real relationship with God is simply going to be governed by their flesh not the Spirit of God, and they will seek to take and not give. But what about this issue with the sacrifices? I mean, they were actually entitled to take and receive from the offerings that were brought. That was supposed to happen. But you can read and study the law in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Leviticus 7 and 10, and multiple other places that give a lot of detail and specifics as to how this would happen. Because first and foremost, these offerings were to be given to the Lord. Some of them wholly and entirely consumed on the altar. Others, only certain portions were to be given to the, the, uh, the support of the priesthood. Verse 15, also before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. In other words, I don't like how you're preparing it. I want to be able to cook it myself so it tastes really good. And if the man said to him, uh, they probably wanted it, you know, rare or something, medium rare, I don't know. They should really burn the fat first. In other words, the fat, it was to be offered before the Lord because it was, you know, like meat that's super, super lean. It's not as good as something that's got a little, little marbling and a little fat, right, because that gives it some taste. Not too much. That was supposed to be for the Lord. They shouldn't really burn the fat first. Then you take as much as your heart desires. He would then answer, no, but you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Whoa. Here the people of God are coming to worship the Lord. <laughs> I mean, imagine, you know. I, I remember, yeah, I've heard stories. You know, I've told stories before. I don't need to get myself here in trouble uh, telling stories about taking up offerings and things. We don't do that here. We, we speak to it because it's an important part of our worship of the Lord. We have offering towers. But imagine if the ushers were still coming up and down the aisles and putting the bag in front of you and kind of, mm -hmm, you know, and, and putting, leaning in a little bit and, and shaking you down. Like, like I want to see what it is, and it's going to be the amount that I, that's what's, that's what's going on here. It's, it's a problem. As I mentioned, Deuteronomy chapter 18 gives details as to what they were to take and were not to take, and they were disregarding all of that. We'll take what we want, how much of we want, when we want. And if you don't give it to me, we'll do it by force. The effect was terrible. Verse 17, therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, 
for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. And we all know people, men and women, who have stopped going to church. Maybe they've walked away from the Lord, or maybe they just won't go and worship uh, with the body of Christ because they've been hurt, because someone up here or in some other place of authority abused their power and took advantage in one way or another. Men abhorred the, that, that people would be, that they would hate church, that they would hate worship because God's representatives, his leaders, failed or acted selfishly. Uh, they, they would be judged sorely, Eli's sons will see, and the same is true in the church today. This is the environment into which Hannah has introduced her precious son. And, and we're not even getting into more of the details that will be explored next week. She had to have known about it, by the way. There's, there's no argument to say, oh, well, maybe Hannah didn't know. No. Men abhorred the offering of the Lord. This had gone on for a while. Eli knew about it. He, he kind of, you know, held his head and, why are you doing this? But never never actually required anything of his sons. Hannah knew and she was trusting God. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. What you commit to the Lord in, in faith-filled service to him, he is able to commit. What you've put on the altar, what you've trusted God with, what, 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 what God said, trust me with it, and you've said, okay, and there it is. He's able to keep it until that day. It is safe with him. And through this, Hannah kept trusting and serving God. Our final point this morning, he gives and takes away. Do you remember that song, Blessed Be the Name? Blessed be the name of the Lord. But Samuel ministered before the Lord, verse 18, even as a child wearing a linen ephod. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year. That's kind of cute, right? You know, you imagine the pictures of the priests and here, little, little mini-me priest, little guy, and he's got like a duplicate outfit that the big guys have. And she would bring every year one that was a little bit bigger and would come up with her husband Elkanah to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, the Lord give, your, give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. Then they would go to their own home and the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. Eli blessing these parents for their sacrificial offering of their child. They're loaning back to God the child that God had loaned to them. And, and in this place, the Lord blessed them with more children. None would take the place of Samuel in their hearts, though each additional child would fill a special new place in their hearts. Naked I came from my mother's womb and Naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Christian maturity is when the child of God, the man or woman of God, is able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. I should turn the volume down on my phone. Christian maturity is when the man or woman of God, the child of God, are able to say, 
both when God gives and when he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Hannah learned this secret and she experienced great blessing in her faith-filled pain. Gratitude, choosing Thanksgiving. Maybe this is a good word several weeks out here as we move into this season of Thanksgiving. When we don't have the answer, choosing gratitude, it's the path to experiencing God's fullness and blessing. And and, in the challenge, the word is this morning to trust him for that today. I, I ran across a story as we, as we close, and maybe the worship team, if you'd like to come up and help us uh, put into practice what we've been speaking about this morning. Ran into a story this past week from an author. He writes of how one day, while he and his son, Zach, were out in the country climbing around in some cliffs, he heard a voice from up above yell, Hey, Dad, catch me! And he writes, I turned around to see Jack joyfully jumping off a rock straight at me. I turned around to see this, uh, and, and in an instant, he says, I became a circus act catching him. We both fell to the ground. For a moment after I caught him, I could hardly talk. The dad was so shocked and glad he hadn't dropped his son. When he found my voice, when I found my voice again, I gasped in exasperation. Zach, can you give me one good reason why you did that? He responded with remarkable calmness. Sure, because you're my dad. His whole assurance was based in the fact that his father was trustworthy. He could live life to the hilt because I, the author, his dad, could be trusted. Isn't this even more true for a Christian? Choosing gratitude, I believe, is an expression of a heart that says, I can trust because I know my Father. I I can leap into his loving arms, into his promises, because he is faithful and he will complete that which concerns me. He is able to keep that which I've committed to him. He's a trustworthy father. We can trust him with the challenges. Choosing gratitude, it readies you and I to walk with him in faith from where we are to where he's called us to be. Again, like that child, to leap into our father's loving arms and promises. Let's stand and do that now as we pray. Father, I pray that you would help us, that you would equip us to trust you, to choose gratitude. Lord, to worship you here, God. To see your promises, to place our faith and our hope in you.